Thank you, Pastor Bryce, for that lovely introduction. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and um, I thank you for being with us today. And uh, our purpose today is to carry on what we were doing yesterday. Uh, you'll see that I've um, uh, randomized my colleagues' lives by rearranging the furniture here, and uh, that's because I always like to be a little bit of a pain. And um, this is simply so I can see my notes, and um, I'm I'm not the tallest gentleman around. So it sort of gives me the illusion in my own psyche that I've actually uh, got a bit of height to myself. Well, let's um, turn to our topic today. We are looking at uh, Acts in our seminars together, and I'm essentially giving you an overview. We're going to be moving today we're through Acts uh, and looking at the different sections so that by the end of it, you will have a good understanding of uh, sort of an overview of what Acts is about. Uh, yesterday, we saw that Luke, he is writing with the conviction, the gospel, that we need a life of Jesus in order to have something to imitate, and compare what he writes with the Greco-Roman lives, and you will see how much better Jesus is as a template to model your lives upon. And then we also saw how in the preface to Luke, how Luke starts with this very technical introduction, and that gives us an insight as to what he views the purpose of his writings for. This is educational literature. This is literature to take you from being new Christians who've heard the Christian truths to being mature Christians who really understand well what the faith is that you have entered. And then we looked at Passover, and uh, maybe we spent a little uh, uh, too little time on that. Uh, Passover is 50 days after, uh, sorry, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Passover is when the Hebrew slaves were liberated from Egypt. 50 days later, Moses gave the law, and uh, at the same time, we had that apostasy. We had the apostasy of Aaron with the golden calf, but Luke is telling us that there is a new story, and it's the story that Jesus died at Passover. It raises the question, what kingdom is He liberating us from? It's not from the Egyptians, but it's from another kingdom He is liberating us from. Fifty days later, uh, we have Pentecost, where the, the Jews were celebrating the giving of the law, but this time we have the giving of the Holy Spirit. And just as God guided the Hebrews through the wilderness through a pillar of fire, now we have these little pillars of fire over each head uh, of those involved. And instead of 3,000 being killed at the apostasy, we have 3,000 being baptized. So this is really a replay of the Exodus story, and that's how Luke starts his gospel. Big difference between this and Exodus. In Exodus, we are going to one destination, to Canaan, the promised land. But when we read Acts, we are spreading out, and this is why we don't have just one pillar of cloud, but we have lots of pillars of cloud, is that this is a, a movement out from Jerusalem, and it is spreading the presence of God, and Luke has all these statements about the Word of God increasing. This is God acting, even though we read so much about Peter and Paul and Stephen and Philip and all these characters, at the end of the day, this is a narrative about God, and we always need to remember that. So that's what we looked at yesterday. 
Today, I would like us to go through Acts in a little more detail. And as we go through, I'm going to be paying a special interest to the types of Christians who enter the church, the diversity. I want you to get an appreciation of how diverse early Christianity was. Now, at the end of this seminar, we might just be overwhelmed. Wow! But I can tell you, that's the nature of our church today, our Seventh-day Adventist church. And it raises the question, as the church grew in Acts, as we read Luke's story, and it's growing not just numerically and geographically, but it's also growing in terms of its diversity, how do you keep that church together? And uh, tomorrow, we will be edging into that discussion. How is it, Luke? when you've got people who are so different in the church that you can keep them all under one umbrella. How is that possible? But let's tell the story of the growth of the church in Acts. And it's, an, it's a, a positive story I'm going to share with you this afternoon. It's a story where as the church grows, the church encounters difficulties. It encounters renewal. It encounters ch- challenges. Nevertheless, we get positive growth, and this is a story for optimists. It's a story for those who see the glass half full rather than half empty, and I always like to turn to Luke and uh, let him whisper in my ear to have faith and to have hope, and that God is in charge even when the church faces problems. He's in charge. That's the narrative I'm sharing with you this afternoon. So, let's start by looking at uh, Luke, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to whiz through a, a selection of verses, and then I will simply uh, paraphrase the rest of the contents of the material around it, just so that you get an idea of what's going on. Now, I know that Pastor Bryce, he is a pastor, and he's ordained, and his, his prayers count for a lot, but would you mind if I have a little prayer just for myself as I open God's Word. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we long for direction. We long to experience the same things that we read about in Your Word. And Lord, as we open Luke's account of early Christian origins, may it inspire us. Give me the words to share, Lord, and may this be a blessing to Your people. I pray in Your name. Amen. Okay, so we are looking at the diversity and uh, uh, growth of the church and the nature of this growth. I'm going to give you an overview of Acts looking at the different socioeconomic groups. Uh, and in plain English, that means the different types of people that are in the church. Nothing too complex. So the church starts off in chapter 1. If you've got Acts with me, turn to chapter 1, and there we have in verse 12, we have the description of the, the first members of what we might call the church, bearing in mind it wasn't called a church at the time. These were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They were Jews, and they never stopped being Jews. Verse 12 we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. 
Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas son of James, all of these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. And then you'll remember the story how Peter stands up and he... he uh, <coughs> deals with the first issue the church has to deal with, which is to replace Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus, and uh, you will never find a time in Christian history when there was a perfect church. Don't look for it. it never, you'll never find it. We are realists here, uh, and yet that's the first thing they do. They replace Judas with Mat uh, Matthias. Uh, and um, the qualification for choosing Matthias we find in verse 21. Uh, this was the key qualification. We need to choose one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time from that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So, in, in short, what do we have? We have a small group that's made up of the family of Jesus, Mary, we have his brothers. Now, that's a wonderful story I don't have time to go into today, because we know from reading the John and from the other Gospels, especially John, that his own brothers rejected him. And yet Jesus sought them out after his resurrection. He cared about his family. He went and met with them, and now they are followers of him. And we have people like James. The epistle of James is written by his brother. Jude, his brother. We have the brothers of Jesus who chain sides. Instead of being skeptical about him, they turn and become his followers. We have the 11 plus Matthias. And these are designated as witnesses. And this is very important. They are Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jews. So that simply means that their mother tongue is Aramaic. Aramaic is the folk form of Hebrew. Okay? Uh, when they go to church, they hear the Hebrew Old Testament read, but they may not understand it very well. And so they then have a plain targum, as we call them, a plain Aramaic version would have been read, which was the Old Testament plus a bit of commentary. And Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic as his mother tongue. So these are Aramaic Palestinian Jews, and later in Acts, they are given the title Hebrews. These are the Hebrews in the church. And they are the twelve and the family. We find there's 120 of them, and these are the ones who saw and heard Jesus in his ministry. Now, we need to appreciate the importance of this group. These are the traditionalists. These are the ones in the early church who, if you came up with theories about what Jesus said and did, they would come along and say, uh-uh, that's not the case. How do you know? I heard him. I was there. It's very important that we take on board the important social function of these Hebrews. These are the guarantors of the traditions that we have in the New Testament, that they actually relate to the historical Jesus. Very, very important. I mean, just to give you an analogy, think about Sister White. When she died in 19, when did she die? 
1915, was it? 19, somewhere around there. And if you had come along in the 20s and proclaimed that Ellen White said this, this, and this, and you made it up, what would happen to you? You'd have people jumping up in the pews and saying, no, Pastor Vine, not so. I knew Sister White, and she never said that. And this is who this group are. They're the guys in the pews who are saying, no, we knew what Jesus said, and we saw what he did, and do not make up things about him. So these are our witnesses, our guarantors that we can trust the traditions that we find in Scripture. This is a book written by a British academic. I actually did my PhD on another book by him, Richard Baucom. He's, uh, he's sort of... Um, I mean, we don't use the title in England evangelical so much as we do in America, but he's on that side of the spectrum. He's a great historian, and he taught, um, I think he was up at Durham University, which is one of our top universities. He produced this book a couple of, maybe 10 years ago, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and it helped bring scholarship back to the realization that what we have in the Gospels are not just daydreams by early believers, but they are eyewitness testimonies which are trustworthy. And if I can just share a couple of his ideas, uh, why is it when you read in Mark that the first apostle or disciple who is mentioned in Mark is Peter? So we read in Mark 1, verse 16, and Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew. And then unique to Mark, we go to chapter 16, and would you believe it, who is the last disciple mentioned? We read it in chapter one, uh, 16, verse 7. Jesus, uh, we read these words, but go tell his disciples and Peter. And uh, you find when you're reading Mark that the first disciple mentioned is Peter, and the last mention of any disciples by name is Peter. And what Mark is saying, he's saying, do you want to know who the, the eyewitness testimony is to everything I am sharing with you, why you can trust what I have shared with you? It's because my eyewitness testimony source is Peter. You don't believe what I write? Go and speak to Peter. He will tell you that what I've included is absolutely correct. You want to buy this at the moment. It's cheap. I know we're promoting books at the moment. This is on Amazon uh, as a Kindle book for like just a couple of dollars. It really is worth buying and reading. And he's got some fabulous arguments in there uh, for the trustworthiness of Scripture because early Christians were aware that in the ancient world, you could make anything up. You really could. Uh, but no, we want to know who the eyewitnesses were. So, there we have the eyewitness testimony, just a few words on it. And then we come to the story of Pentecost. Pentecost we looked at yesterday. Uh, I'm not going to take you through the whole story, but the point I want to bring out is that when the Holy Spirit comes upon that group and they start speaking in various tongues, we get a, a, va a crowd from a whole host of places, and um, I'm going to be brave enough to actually have a go at reading these places, okay? And you, listen, you follow along, verse 9, the crowd, they ask, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Parthian, uh, the Parthians 
where the, uh, the bogeymen of the ancient Roman world, it's what we would call um, Babylonia, and they were always threatening to invade the east side of the Roman Empire. So we've got Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya beyond the uh, belonging to Cyrene, uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. Now, why is this important? It tells us that these, this group from basically all over the known world is that when they got received the gospel. They didn't receive it second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand. They received it from the Hebrews, from the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now, this is extremely important when we're considering the origins of Christianity in a secular environment, because secular critics are saying, no, 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 no. Christianity spread, and as it spread, they just made up lots and lots of stories about Jesus, and then maybe a a generation later, they gathered them together, and there we have the Gospels. Not so according to what we have here. Rather, what we see is, is that these guys heard the Gospel, and who did they hear it from? They heard it from the eyewitnesses. So it means that the types of script, uh, Christianity that develop and grow, because as we read Acts, it's mostly a story about the dinosaurs of the ancient church, the big beasts, the Stephens and the Peters and the Pauls. But actually, if you look under the radar screen, you can see that there's another story, and that other story is of these guys going out and nobody tells their story, but they take their gospel over to the Rome so that when Ro Paul, the big guy, ends up in Rome, guess what? There's already a church there. No history, but this is the silent witness, the, the untold story of how God moves the church, not just through important individuals, but through guys who we haven't got a clue what they are called, and yet that's how God works. Never underestimate our witness as normal church members. It is extremely important. This is the hidden story to Acts, which I think is just inspiring. So, there we have uh, the further expansion of the diversity of the church, and here we have mostly Jews who will have come to Jerusalem from all over the known world in order to celebrate Passover, but we've also got not just Jews, but uh, diaspora Jews, but we've also got proselytes, both Jews and proselytes. What is a proselyte? A proselyte is a Gentile who has taken the step, not just of falling in love with the teachings of Judaism, and there was a lot who did that, but they have fallen in love to the extent that they have actually been circumcised if they were men and become uh, Jews. Uh, to be a Jew is not simply an ethnic thing. It's a larger category, uh, just as today to be a Christian uh, is um, more than just to be an Englishman. So, here we have the opening explosion of the church. Straight away it's diverse, but this diversity is tied closely to the eyewitnesses of Jesus. It means we can trust what these guys say as we go through the story. 
So, let, we, let us move on. Let us move to chapter 6, and forgive me for skipping over this. In future seminars, we'll come back to the sermons that Peter preaches to the leaders. We'll look at that on Thursday. When we come to chapter 6, we find that there's another group in Acts. Uh, and let me read chapter 6, verses 1, and a few verses on. So, do, now, during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. Who did I suggest the Hebrews were? The Hebrews are people like Peter and the family of Jesus, the brothers of Jesus, Mary. These are the Hebrews, okay? So the Hellenists, and we have to ask who are the Hellenists, we'll address that in a moment, complained because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven good men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we may appoint to this task. And so they select them. And I'm going to read the list. It's an important indication of the nature of early Christianity. We read it in verse 5. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolos, a or Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And then they uh, prayed, laid their hands on them. And the question is, is whether these guys are actually already leaders, and this is an affirmation process, or whether they're just, oh, we'll have you, you, and you. And it is most likely that they uh, already had some form of leadership within their community. Now, who are these Hellenists? We've had, got the Hebrews there mentioned, and I would suggest to you that those are the Aramaic speaking Palestinian Jews, but we've also got Hellenists. And uh, the suggestion, which is uh, most commonly accepted, is that these are also Jews. These are Jews, diaspora Jews. What is a diaspora Jew? I am a diaspora Brit, okay? So, I am originally from Britain. I've lived here in the U.S. for five years, and still part of me yearns for England, for its fish and chips, and its Marmite, and its Premier League football. So, you know, I am a part of me is back there, yes, and I've got this pull every so often, yes, but slowly, slowly I'm learning to cope with that. Uh, I am a diaspora Brit, and a diaspora Jew is a Jew who moved away from Israel, and after the exile, most Jews were either in uh, in um, Babylonia or in Pal uh, Judea, uh, and when uh, Alexander invaded, we had a very high rate of emigration. Jews were leaving that area. Why? Because they could go to rich Alexandria in Egypt and get double the wages. They could go to Asia Minor, Turkey, and they went. They followed where the money was, and so many moved but then, you know, they would come back, and they would keep ties with the motherland. These are the Hellenists. Helen, I mean, we've got the name Helen. Helen is the Greek term for a Greek. They don't say, I'm a Greek. They would say, I am a Helen, okay? It's just the Greek term for Greece, just as, 
You know, you go around Europe and you go to Hungary and you realize that no Hungarian ever talks about being from Hungary. It's always from Mogirasag, yes? Uh, or, uh, and then in Polish, they call it Węgry. I mean, the poor country doesn't know what to call itself, depending on which language you choose. But um, Helen just means, um, uh, it just means uh, someone who was bought into Greek culture. But these are Jews. They are diaspora Jews. And so we have in the church, we have the Hebrews, the family of Jesus, the twelve, and then we have the Hellenists, and they are learning to, that there are some issues between them, and they're learning that sometimes we need to have separate leadership structures, but they're not so separate because they keep working together. And these two communities where maybe, you know, it's like here we worship in English on Sabbath, or a form of English, let's say, and then you go down the road and we uh, worship in Spanish at the Spanish church, uh, and yet we're part of the same movement. And this is really what we've got going on in the early church. So, there we have the Greek-speaking diaspora Jews, the Hellenists, and it is these guys who drive the story on. The Hebrews tend to remain in Jerusalem. Occasionally, they will move out, but it's the Hellenists, the diaspora believers. It's as if the Lord put a rocket up them, and off they went and took the message out from Jerusalem. They already live abroad, and so they take the gospel with them. So, here we have the next stage, is that these Hellenists who closely tied to the Hebrews, so they're not going to make up crazy theology. Yeah, the, the two communities are closely tied. They start to edge out, and we find in chapter 6, if I can just return back to chapter 6, that persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And it's very interesting, this persecution. We read in verse six, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 8, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. And then if you read on, they started persecuting. The persecution in Jerusalem is not Jews persecuting the Hebrews, the uh, people like Peter. They don't get persecuted. Instead, it's Hellenist non-believers persecuting Hellenist believers in Jesus. It's Hellenist diaspora Jews persecuting other diaspora Jews. So, the end result of that is that they leave Jerusalem, and here is the thing, is that even when you would think that the circumstances in the early church are desperate, we're being persecuted, God seems to turn that around, and it is a means of spreading His message. You know, if we don't do it willingly, we will sometimes have to do it through persecution. And this is what happens. And they spread out. And then we get the stories in chapter 8, verse uh, 4 onwards. Uh, And I'm going to paraphrase here because time is against me. I would love to um, take over the next session and the session after that and the session after that, but um, probably not going to be allowed to do that. But uh, we find that the Hellenists, Philip, goes to uh, Samaria. These are cousin Jews. So we're moving into 
those ethnic groups which are almost Jewish. And then in chapter 8, we also have the story of the Philippian, uh, sorry, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and um, my wife is actually from Ethiopia. I wouldn't say this is one of her favorite biblical stories, but uh, she's quite familiar with it. And um, what you will find is that many, many Ethiopians actually considered themselves followers of Judaism. And uh, the reason is, is because the Queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon, and then she uh, learned more than just wisdom for, from Solomon and went back with, as we say, a bun in the oven, back to Ethiopia and had a little baby. And this son was then sent back to, Ethiopia, uh, to Jerusalem where he learned his father's religion and brought it back and taught the Ethiopians. Uh, my father-in-law is actually an Ethiopian Orthodox priest. If you ask Ethiopian Orthodox believers which is the true day to worship, they will tell you Sabbath. Okay, it's very, very surprising, but uh, we have good evidence for the gospel spreading. And this is who the Ethiopian uh, eunuch is. We then come to the Roman centurion uh, Cornelius. He is a centurion of the Italian cohort. The Romans' most soldiers in uh, Judea at the time of Jesus were probably uh, Syrians, but their centurions would have been Roman. And what we get, just have a look. We had one chapter, chapter 9, uh, chapter 8, uh, we had with a, the Samaritans and the Ethiopians, but chapter 10 is all about Cornelius, and then into chapter 11, half of chapter 11, is all about Cornelius. Why is Cornelius so lucky to get a whole chapter and a half about his conversion? The reason is, He's a Roman, and Romans are important. Uh, and unfortunately, I even have to confess to my wife, they're even more important if you're Luke's readers than the Ethiopians. But this is really a signal to the readers of Luke. You know, you may be Roman. We're not a threat. We have come with good news for your empire. We're not going to pull it down. We recognize that God can take what you already have and make it better. And uh, if I can just point out one thing about Cornelius, chapter 10, verse 2, we have a very important descriptor to him. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. And we have what we call God-fearers. God-fearers were Jew, uh, pagans who, if you read your pagan literature, it's basically about gods committing incest, murder, rape, all these things. It's not the nicest thing to, st to study in Sabbath school. Uh, and it doesn't provide you with a good ethical base for your life. And in Roman uh, religion, there was no link between what you believed in the gods and your ethical behavior. There just wasn't a link. Whereas in Judaism, there was a link. I am a holy God, and I would like you to be a holy people. That is unique in the ancient world, to link the nature of your gods with the nature of the followers. Uh, uh, but that simply didn't occur in paganism. You could believe in your gods quite happily and be a thoroughly nasty person, and nobody thought the worse of you. So, here we have a God-fearer, and these are pagans who've looked at their own culture and say, hmm, yeah, it, it's not so good. And yet we see those Jews, and there's something attractive about them. They proclaim one God, monotheism. They are ethically 
superior to what we see around us. There is a, they, they are the type of people we would be lo- like to be. And so these guys were pagans who came to the synagogue and worshipped in the synagogue, but they never became proselytes. They never took the step of circumcision and actually becoming Jews. So this is, I mean, we might say a Jew in all but name, Cornelius, a fearer of God. And it is this group where Paul gets most of his converts from, not from out-and-out pagans, but from the God-fearers. God has already worked earlier in earlier generations to create this receptive group. So, there we have Cornelius. Now, I'm going to back up and just um, uh, look at one verse in chapter 9. Chapter 9, because in we have the story of Paul and his conversion. And I've already shared with you yesterday how in chapter 1, verse 8, we have this programmatic statement. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. We've talked about what that means in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria. That's chapter 8, chapter 9, to the ends of the earth, even to the ends of the earth far away, uh, where the earth you know, the earth uh, sort of drops off and there's little Rome on the end. And uh, that's what we've seen geographically as we read Acts. But with Paul, we have another very, very important verse. And there is a chap called Ananias. And he comes and he's given this message to give to Paul. And this is his message. And we read it in verse 15 and 16. 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, Paul, is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And this really sets the agenda for the rest of Acts. Paul, we're moving from the chapters dominated by Peter to now the chapters dominated by Paul, and this is the agenda. He is going to take the name of Jesus to three groups. He's going to take the name of Jesus before Gentiles, before kings, and the people of Israel. And that really is what the rest of Acts is about, is Jesus, Paul firstly going to the Jews and Gentiles, and then the last third of Acts is about Paul before the kings. So this really is a programmatic statement. Uh, If you want a suspense mystery, uh, mystery whodunit, don't read Acts. We know what the ending is, and that is important because Luke wants his readers to understand that there is a God who has a plan, and when he sets out his plan, somehow he reaches the end goal, and that is something that should encourage us. Now, before I move on, I have one little thing I love about the story about the conversion of Paul. Uh, what is Luke telling us about the nature of God's people in Acts 9, 10 to 12? Uh, we find that uh, the church, as I mentioned, is never perfect. You know, I found this as a pastor. Every so often you'd get, oh, the church, you never know what they're, oh, 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 oh. Yeah, oh, I can't be bothered with that. And off they go into the spiritual wilderness. And I would say, no, Scripture gives us a very realistic picture of the church. What is the first issue the church has to deal with, I mentioned? Judas. 
And then we come to chapter three and four, the church is growing like wildfire, and then we hit another problem, Ananias and Sapphira, and you know the story, how they lied to the Holy Spirit. So we've had two, well, three of them. We've had Judas and then Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. And maybe you've noticed this. If you have, just bear with me. But we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, that this is after Paul has seen the Lord on the road to Damascus. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. Uh, This must have been in America because all the streets here are straight. Uh, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Did you pick up on the name play there? What other names have we got in the conversion of Paul? Ananias. And where is Paul? At Judas's house. This is a lovely little message. Paul, uh, Luke is telling us that, yes, we had a Judas who betrayed Jesus, but guess what we've got here? A Judas who is a true follower of Jesus. We had an Ananias who lied to the Holy Spirit, but what do we have here? An Ananias who is willing even to go into danger and into a room with Paul the persecutor. It is wonderful message, and this is Luke's message to us, that the church is what it is, and yet God somehow has the means and the ways, and don't ask me how, it's His church, but He turns it around, and you think you're facing a problem which is insurmountable. Oh, no. Judas's Ananiases, don't worry, the Lord can replace you with better Judas's and better Ananiases. It's His church, and He wants it to grow. So, I just thought that was a lovely little feature in Acts. So, we have 10 minutes left. Let me give you a brief overview of the rest of Acts. So, we have, uh, what have we got here? Yeah, I can move on. I need to coordinate my right hand with my left. Uh, So, we have Paul, the ministry of Paul, and let me give you a very brief overview. Paul, we have his first missionary journey. And um, let me just give you a, if I can, just read the first uh, verses that describe his first missionary journey. His missionary journey uh, takes him from uh, Antioch over into uh, Asia Minor over here. And we read in Acts 13, verses 1 to 4, 3, these words. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the ruler, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, who? The Holy Spirit, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. And so they lay their hands on and off they go and do the Holy Spirit's work. Now, in the ancient world and what we've got here, we're going from the, the we've got five people in that list. And in, in ancient lists, we go from the most important to the least. Barnabas is the head elder of the church. Paul is number five. Luke is telling us who these guys are from. Simon, who's called Niger, maybe he is from North Africa. Lucius, Roman name from Cyrene, North Africa. He's, he's shouting out, look at the diversity of the early church. We have a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. 
And while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Let me just make a point here. Uh, And even if I have to change my plan for the rest of the week, this is important stuff. If you are in Jerusalem, how do you decide who is the leader of the church? If you are in Jerusalem, the Hebrews, you're either a member of Jesus' family or you are one of the twelve. That is good in Jerusalem, but it's not so good when you're in Antioch. There's only so many number, uh, so many brothers of Jesus, and uh, there's only 12 apostles. And uh, if we only follow that way of choosing who leads the church, well, poor Pastor Kelly, we're going to have to ask him to leave our church because he ain't one of, one, one of the 12, and he's not, as far as I know, but I haven't confirmed. He can't trace, he's never told us in his sermons that he can trace his lineage back to one of the brothers of Jesus. So unfortunately, Pastor Kelly, you're going to have to leave our church. No, no, because Paul comes along and he says, look, uh, if we, we need Jerusalem, but in Antioch, we face a different situation. We haven't got the 12. We haven't got the brothers of Jesus. So how are we going to choose who leads? It seemed good to who? The Holy Spirit. And this is where when we read in Paul, we read in Ephesians, his letter to the Ephesians, we read in his uh, letter uh, to First uh, Corinthians, we read there that we have the, the doctrine, or I don't know whether we can call it doctrine, but we have Paul's teachings on spiritual gifts. And it is this that we need, the gift of sp- spiritual gifts, uh, the teaching of spiritual gifts, which allows the church in Antioch to move forward. They, they, they don't say, look, Jerusalem, please send us one of the twelve. Uh, We haven't got anybody here who directly knew Jesus, but now we have got a new source of authority, and it's the Holy Spirit. And this is what we get. The Holy Spirit now leads the church to choose its leaders. But now we have two forms of authority, the Twelve, the family of Jesus in Jerusalem, and the Spirit guiding in Acts. And actually, the church is a composite of both. It requires both. We carry on with the, with the witnesses, uh, and that's represented in our New Testament. And even today, as a church, when we pray and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to lead us, and to guide us when we're doing committees and nominating committees, we have to step out in faith and say that though they may not be a brother of Jesus, they are blessed by the Holy Spirit. So we find that there is a shift in how the church operates. Now, we have another five minutes, and I will simply whiz through what we have there uh, for um, the different ministry, uh, uh, missionary journeys of Paul, just to give you uh, an overview. Let me back up. His first ministry journey, what he does, he goes to the synagogue first, and then he goes to the Gentiles. Do you remember what the message to Paul was? You are to take my gospel to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the kings. And this is what we find. He goes to the synagogue first, and then he goes to the Gentiles. Uh, That's his first missionary journey. We then come to his second missionary journey. I'm going to whip through this stuff. Uh, 
His second missionary journey, a similar pattern. He goes to the synagogue first, and then he goes to the Gentiles, often to the God-fearers. Later this week, we will look at what was preached to Jews and what was preached to Gentiles. It's very important that we scratch where people are itching. There is no point in preaching a message to the Jews, to Gentiles. They won't have a clue what you're talking about, and we will look at that later this week. So there we have the next missionary journey, and this is a missionary journey where he is taken over, he's going through the churches, which he's already started, and then you remember he gets this vision from a man from Macedonia come over. He goes over into Macedonia, and he basically gets booted out of each church he goes to, each synagogue. And you can imagine him getting booted out of Philippi, down into Thessalonica, booted out, down to Berea, booted out. And he comes down to Corinth, and he writes to the Corinthians that I came to you with fear and trembling. And here is the thing. You can be called to do God's work and find that it's actually difficult. Just because God has called you to mission doesn't mean it's all going to be plain sailing. So this is his missionary journey, his second missionary journey. We come to his third missionary journey. And I'm going to skip through this material. You can always come to the seminary and enroll on one of our programs, and we can go through this in more detail. But uh, <coughs> yeah, so there's the solution. Um, his next missionary journey, so he's doing the Jews and the Gentiles. This is outreach. It's evangelism. But here, I have a pastoral heart. I worked as a pastor for nine years, and I know that it's it's, you have to, first of all, keep existing customers. It's always easier to keep an existing customer than to gain a new customer. That's what businessmen tell you, okay? And so here on his third missionary journey, he goes around and he's not doing evangelism. He is going around and he is talking to the disciples that he's already made. And this is partial care. There's no point in just having partial care with no evangelism. The church grows stale. But if you have evangelism with no partial care, it's a revolving door. They come into the church and they leave. And all you've done, you've vaccinated them so that next time a preacher comes along, they say, no, thank you. Don't want to hear that. I've already done that. Seen there, been there, uh, got the T-shirt. So we need partial care. And then finally, I've got a, a minute and a half, so we come to the uh, uh, final third of Acts, and this is what we find. We find that Paul is fulfilling his mission. He was told to go to, go to Jews and to Gentiles. He's not just the apostle for the Gentiles. He was called to go for both groups. But he was also told to go to the kings, the rulers. The Lord has a mission to those in charge of society. Why? Here is the theology behind it. For a nation to be judged on, na on judgment day, the whole of the nation, the sheep and the shepherds, let's get it the right way around, the shepherds and the sheep need to have been warned. Otherwise, the nation as a whole can't be held accountable on Judgment Day. Uh, I don't have time to go into that, but that's how it works with the Old Testament prophets, yeah, how, it, how it works in the gospel. And so we have Paul in this section of the gospel going through all, all these kings and rulers and people in authority. 
So, let us come to a close. What have we learned? This is God's mission growing and spreading through, and I'm sure I've got one final slide which uh, talks uh, about where I've put up the diversity of early Christianity. We haven't covered all of this, but you can trust me by now, I hope. We've got the 12. We've got members of the family of Jesus. We've got Aramaic-speaking Jews. We've got Diaspora Jews from the known world. We've got priests, chapter 6, verse 7. Thousands of priests came to believe. An amazing uh, uh, verse when you consider that the chief priests are telling them not to believe. So they're going against their own bosses. We've got proselytes. We've got God-fearers. We've got Samaritans. We've got Ethiopians. We've got Greeks and Romans. We've got Timothy. He's the only person in the ancient world that we know who is part Jew and part Greek. He's an incredible chap. We have members of the lower and upper classes. We have Sergius Paulus, a Roman uh, (coughs) uh, ruler who converts. We've got members in chapter 15 of the sect of the Pharisees. My goodness, what's going on here? And then, according to chapter 1, 21, we've got thousands of Jews who are zealous for the law. We haven't been able to look at those two last groups, but um, uh, it tells us that the church in Jerusalem uh, was continued as a healthy church. And uh, this is really what we find in Acts. It's God's present spreading not just geographically, but into every ethnic group. He cares about each ethnic group. He wants essentially to undo the story of the Tower of Babel and bring us back into a united people as His creatures. So, tomorrow we will look at how to keep the big beasts together, Peter and Paul. It's very easy for us to split the church uh, over our preferences, and we prefer this, and you prefer that. And uh, looking at all that diversity, I am amazed how the church held together. How did it hold together? This is what we will look at in our next presentation. So maybe you can just bow our heads and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it just challenges us, Lord, and inspires us. And we pray that You will be as active today as You were back then. We give ourselves to You. May we be uh, little Pentecost-inspired believers, Lord, taking Your presence wherever we go. We pray this in Your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.